Since all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 31, verses 1 to 55. If you are using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 25. I wonder, who do you want on your side? Who do you want on your side? I suppose it depends upon the circumstance, doesn't it? Sometimes you want your big sister on your side. I know this from experience. Uh, one time when we were standing in the snack line at school, a kid pushed me over and took my place in line. And my sister was standing behind me, and so she pushed him over and knocked him to the ground. And she stood over him and told him, Don't you ever touch my brother again. And well, wouldn't you know it, uh, soon word got around the school, and uh, the, the kids were saying, Don't mess with Mike Law or his sister will beat you up. <laughs> I am pretty sure I was the safest kid in school for the rest of the year. Sometimes you want your big sister on your side, but you always want the Lord on your side. And that's what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. You know, recently in our study in the book of Genesis, we've been following the life of Jacob and the promises of God to send his son to be the savior of the world. They're going to come through Jacob and his family line. Uh, but what we're seeing is that Jacob is constantly facing challenges that God is carrying him through. And in these last few weeks, we've watched Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, give him all kinds of trouble. In our passage this morning, the Lord calls Jacob to leave, to flee from uh, Laban's house. And Laban pursues him. But in the end, Jacob goes free. He goes free to enter into the promised land, all because... The Lord was on his side. The Lord was with him. The Lord protected him. And the Lord secured peace for Jacob. So, beloved, here is the sermon in a sentence. And that doesn't mean you can go to sleep after this. But here's the sermon in a sentence. The Lord is on your side. And he will bring you safely home. The Lord is on your side. And he will bring you safely home. Well, what's the payoff? Right? Well, what's the payoff that the Lord is on your side. What does it mean, practically speaking, that God is on your side? It means that you enjoy His presence, that you are protected by His power, and that He procures your peace. We're going to see these three comforts from Genesis 31 this morning, and they'll form the outline of the rest of the sermon. God promises you His presence. God protects you in His power. And God procures your peace. You can find a full outline provided there in the bulletin, Lord willing. But let's go ahead and dive into our first point. God promises you His presence. Follow along now as I read Genesis 31. Just verses 1 to 3 for now. Genesis 31, verses 1 to 3. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. You see what God, God promises to Jacob there in verse 3? He promises his presence. He says, I will be with you. 
That must have been a wonderful comfort to Jacob, especially in light of God's command for him to return to his homeland. I wonder, you think about this hostility that Jacob's facing and the journey that he's going on. You recognize the comfort that it is that God would promise to be with his people. Do you recognize that you, Christian, have that same comfort? You have been promised the presence of Christ with you on your journey home to our heavenly promised land. When Jesus commissioned his followers to go and to make disciples of all nations, he promised to be with us to the very end of the age. As we read earlier in the service, right, from Romans 8 verse 39, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. God promised his presence with his people in the Old Testament, and he promises his presence with his people today. And you see there in verse 3, the Lord commanded Jacob to return to the land of his fathers. This was actually always God's plan for Jacob. So back in Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob was on his way to Laban's house, God told him that he would return to the land of Canaan. In Genesis 28 verse 15, the Lord said, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob, he spent his time outside of the promised land, and now God is calling him to go back, just as he promised. Do you realize that Jacob's life was actually a foreshadowing of what would happen in the life of the nation of Israel as a whole? The very people who were actually reading this book, they're the first audience of this book. They're learning lessons from this book. Later, God would call them to follow Joseph into Egypt. We'll see that when we get further into our study in the book of Genesis, Lord willing. But God actually, He promised to bring them back. And as they were reading this story of Jacob, they would begin to recognize their own history and their own experience in His history and His experience. They'd be learning lessons from Him. And so this call from God to return home, it comes at just the right time, doesn't it? Jacob has learned that Laban and his sons no longer regard him with favor. In fact, a more literal kind of rendering of these verses, of this hostility, might indicate that their faces were set against Jacob. They were determined to do something, to rectify this situation. They were bitter that God had blessed Jacob, and at the expense of Laban and his household. As we saw in Genesis 30, God had multiplied Jacob's people and multiplied Jacob's possessions. What Laban and his sons failed to recognize that it was partly their fault. I mean, you see, Jacob, he's the recipient of the Abrahamic promises. God promised to bless Abraham. And Abraham passed that blessing down to Isaac. And Isaac passed that blessing down to Jacob. And the Abrahamic promises, the passing of those blessings, part of that promise included God's commitment to bless those who blessed his people. And to curse those who cursed his people. Laban... And his sons cursed Jacob over and over again. So God blessed Jacob over and over again. At their expense, the Lord was on his side. And Jacob underscores the Lord's presence and prosperity as he discusses his plan to leave with Rachel and Leah in verses 4 to 16. Read those verses now. Take a look at verses 4 to 16. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. 
Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Here, uh, Jacob, he lays out the case for leaving to Rachel and Leah. As a good leader, he doesn't simply give the command, look, we're going, done, period, end of discussion. No, he leads Rachel and Leah along by teaching them about God and what God has said and what God has done for them. He, He shows them why they can follow this command from God to leave. They can follow God's command because God has been faithful. Do you see God's faithfulness there in Jacob's words? Verse 5, The God of my fathers has been with me. Though Laban was a cheat, you see verse 7, God did not permit him to harm me. Though all seem bleak, God blessed Jacob just as he said he would. You see verse 9, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And then of course in verses 10 to 12, Jacob points out that God revealed himself to Jacob in a dream. Just as he had done before at Bethel. God continued to make his presence known to Jacob. And in this dream, the the angel of the Lord made the point that Laban's mistreatment of Jacob did not go unnoticed by God. You see verse 12, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. What Jacob is doing is actually what good husbands do. They say, honey... We can trust God with this journey. Look at what He has done. He's always been faithful. He will be again. What do you say? Shall we go? In truth, all of this language that Jacob is using as he's giving this explanation to Rachel and Leah is Exodus language. In the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, God calls out to Moses in a divine encounter at the burning bush. Like he calls out to Jacob in this dream. And Moses answered in the same words that Jacob did. Here I am. God told Moses that he saw the affliction of his people. What did Jacob just reveal? In that dream, God saw his affliction. God was calling Jacob to go. Just like he would later call the people of Israel to arise and go out from the land of Egypt and to return to the land of their kindred. Don't forget the first audience who's receiving this book. People of Israel who had come up out of Egypt, they were making this journey too. The same journey that Jacob was making. They were listening to this story. They were seeing that Jacob's God is their God. They were learning that God has always been with His people. And it should assure them in their journey that God would be with them. 
Beloved, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is with you. And you're going to make it. You might not feel like it from day to day, or week to week, or month to month sometimes, but you are going to make it. Because God will make sure you get there. You see, in verses 14 to 16, Rachel and Leah, they agree to follow Jacob's lead. And this is somewhat surprising because these two sisters have hardly agreed about anything. I mean, the first half of Genesis chapter 30 testified to their squabbles over sons. But they agree to go here. And how could they say otherwise? I mean, when God calls and commands, when God gives his word, we ought to obey his word. And that's what they commit to doing, to obeying God's word and go. Verses 17 to 21, they recount the departure of Jacob and his household. But here's the thing. The journey is full of traps and temptations. I mean, you know this in your own experience, don't you? That your life's journey is full of traps and temptations. See if you can spot the traps and temptations for them as I read verses 17 to 21. Follow along. Verses 17 to 21 there. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possessions that he acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Do you see the traps and temptations? Rachel steals her father's household gods. The apple does not fall too far from the tree. I mean, she's a thief just like her father. But she's also a lot like her husband, Jacob. Rachel steals, verse 19, and Jacob steals away, verse 20. And actually, in the original language, you can see that the two are connected. Now, we don't know what motivated Rachel to steal these little idols. These were kind of little figurines. Uh, maybe she was trusting in these false gods. Maybe she was just trying to get back at her father. Uh, maybe, as some have suggested, whoever possessed these household gods, these little idols, they actually held the title to the estate, to the property. Whatever the case may be, Laban's sin of stealing her inheritance, that happened in verse 15, right? they devoured all of our money, they say. Laban's sin of stealing her inheritance does not justify her sin of stealing his idols. Verse 19. Notice that Jacob tricks Laban. I mean, 20 years earlier, Jacob tricked his father, Isaac, and fled his household. And now, he tricks Laban and flees Laban's household. Jacob is trusting in his trickery instead of the God who promised his presence. When God promises his presence to us, he's calling us to depend upon him and not upon deceit. Jacob, he still has a long way to go in growing his trust in the Lord. But I wonder if you can relate. I mean, perhaps there are sins that you still struggle with and fall back into, maybe even after 20 years of following Jesus. Remembering God's presence with us should, I think, profoundly shape and transform how we face temptation. I mean, are you really going to sin when you remember that the infinite and holy God is right there with you? Are you really going to click on that link when you remember that Christ 
the risen and crucified, the crucified and risen Christ is right there with you. The presence of the living God with us and in us is a guard against fleshly greed and idolatry. It is a grace for those who are tempted to give in to sin. Remember that the Lord is on your side and by your side. That can be a help to you in your sanctification when you're tempted to sin. Christian, God has been with you. God is with you. God will be with you. Don't turn to sin. Turn to Him. Because He is with you in His presence, He can protect you in His power. That's what He does with Jacob. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 31, beginning there in verse 22 and stretching through verse 42. This is our second point. God protects you in His power. Because Rachel stole, and because Jacob stole away, Laban comes after them. And they bring this trouble upon themselves. But God is present with them. He protects them in His power. Follow along as I read verses 22 to 32. Just now, just now, verses 22 to 32. Genesis 31. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? That you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me? So that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Laban uh, has been engrossed in an important event for an owner of a sheep. The, the shearing of sheep. And the collection of gold. That, that took several days and often took every available hand. And Jacob, he knew that this was a laborious and time-consuming task that will allow him to get a jump on Laban. So as it turns out, Laban, we see J Jacob here, gets a, a three-day kind of head start on Laban. And Laban had to pursue him for seven days just to catch up. Now, to our great relief, Moses does not give us a math problem to tell us to figure out how much faster Laban was traveling than Jacob. No, um, he, he focuses our attention on something else, doesn't he? He focuses on God's intervention. Right In verse 24, God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night. 
And this has happened before in the book of Genesis. When the people of God and the promises of God are imperiled, God turns up. He intervenes. So back in Genesis chapter 20, when Abimelech, when Sarah had gone into Abimelech's house, God came to Abimelech in a dream and warned him not to touch her. And God was intervening to protect his people. And that's what he's doing here. Laban, we know, he he wants his possessions and he wants his people back. Laban is on his way, note, with his kinsmen, a small army, and he does not have good intentions. Laban's kinsmen might be with him, but the Lord is with Jacob. The Lord is intervening to warn Laban. When the Lord says, do not say anything good or bad, uh, what's happening there, good or bad, is uh, in Hebrew literature, it's called a merism. It, it takes kind of the top and the bottom. So think of, uh, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. And it refers actually to heaven and earth. God reigns over heaven and earth and really everything in between. So it's kind of an all-encompassing. So, um, so when the Lord says, do not say anything good or bad to Jacob, he's saying, actually, don't say anything at all. And clearly, it's a, it's a warning. The Lord knows uh, that Laban has bad intentions. The Lord is essentially saying, look, if you, if you open your mouth, or if you pull out your sword, uh, you'll have me to deal with, Laban. That's what the Lord is, is impressing upon Laban in this dream. And Laban, as we see through the narrative, he's not very obedient to the word of the Lord, is he? I mean, he doesn't really obey the Lord's command. He, he launches into an inquisition in verses 25 to 30. He walks right up to the edge of violating God's command if he doesn't violate it, in fact. He has the audacity, really, to... I mean, and this is something, right? He has the audacity to chide Jacob for tricking him, for deceiving him, as if he's never tricked or deceived anyone before in his life, right? Let alone Jacob. I mean, he plays the innocent victim when, in fact, he's kind of the champion trickster and deceiver. He pretends that if only, only, Jacob, you would have told me that you wanted to go home, then I would have thrown you a great party, complete with liar. Liar, right? Verse 29 shows us that if the Lord had not intervened, Laban surely would have harmed Jacob. It's almost as if he's bitter about the Lord's intervention. This is Laban's kind of verbal temper tantrum. As if to say, if your God had not warned me, you'd be dead right now. I mean, Christian, think about this. You you may not see the restraining hand of God. But I would not be surprised if we each learned in glory that there were many times when God powerfully protected us from disaster. Then I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, right, where he's arrested He's got this journey to go on. He's arrested. He faces an assassination plot. He's shipwrecked. He's bitten by a snake. And yet the Lord had a destination for him to reach. And he protected him all the way to the end of his journey. Christian, you will not reach your appointed end until God determines. He is powerfully protecting you and bringing you home. Even when enemies try to devour you. God will not allow ultimate or eternal harm to befall you. He cannot lose any that belong to Him. He powerfully protects His people and He brings them safely to glory. Now in verse 30, Laban, he really makes one last attempt to find legitimate grounds to harm Jacob. He accuses him of stealing these household gods. Again, these were these, um, these kind of little figurines, little idols 
They were precious to Laban. They represented the deities that he served and worshipped. And in verse 31, Jacob tells Laban why he ran off. He's like, you're a bad dude. I don't trust you. That's, I mean, that's what he's saying. You're prone to violence and use of force. And then Jacob foolishly invites Laban to take a look around his people and possessions. Jacob, he invites Laban to kill anyone he finds with a household gods. I mean, Jacob has inadvertently thrown his wife, Rachel, into harm's way. He has no idea that she's stolen these idols, but he's just put a death sentence on her if Laban discovers them. So let's see what happens. Follow along, verses 33 to 35. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Now this scene is, is tense because Laban is breathing murderous threats against Jacob and his household. And notice how Moses kind of elongates the scene, right? He shows us everybody's tent until we come to Rachel's tent. Uh, Laban is clearly bound and determined to find these little figurines and put someone to death. Laban wants his pound of flesh. And many of you laughed as we were reading this scene. And and rightly so. It's a comical scene because Laban's household gods are mistreated and defiled. And here is a lesson that Laban doesn't get. But that the people of Israel must get. And that you, Christian, must get. If somebody can walk off with your household gods, then they're not that great. You, You get that, right? If somebody can stuff them in a saddle and sit on them then they're not that strong. If those idols can't speak and say, here we are, Laban, then they're impotent. In other words, if your household gods have no power, no personhood, and no ability to protect themselves, then why do you think they can protect you? I mean, do you see the lesson that Moses is teaching the people of Israel here? A people who are later going to be very, very prone to idolatry. He has shown... That God makes promises and that God exercises His power to protect His people while exposing the folly of idols. Moses is saying to Israel, Your God is greater than the gods of the nations. You don't need them on your side. You have the Lord on your side. And Christian, you need to recognize that about idols in our worlds today. And there are things that the world worships today. Your God is greater than the gods of this world. The gods of sex and money and property and power and intelligence and science and politics and praise and affirmation of men and safety and security. They've all been made into gods and idols by this world. And you don't need them on your side. You need the Lord on your side. And the reality is is that God made all of those things which the world worships. They are good things when used and received 
as the Lord intended. But there are also things that can be turned into idols and worshipped, used, and received outside of God's good design. They're all idols that this world worships. But hear the word of your Lord from 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It was the French reformer who rightly said that the human heart is an idol factory. You can make an idol of almost anything. You are tempted to worship created things rather than the Creator. See the utter foolishness of idolatry. The utter foolishness of Laban. The one true and living God revealed Himself to Laban. Speaking to him in a dream. Revealing his power. Revealing his personhood. Revealing his protection of Jacob. And Laban still refuses. He refuses to abandon his gods. Who have no power. Who have no personhood. And no ability to protect themselves. Let alone Laban. Laban should have come on the side of Jacob and said, Jacob, you have a mighty God. And I want to serve him. Would you tell me about him? But Laban remained committed to his idols. Don't be a fool. Do not fall for the folly of idolatry. Idols are dumb and they make you dumb. Laban's search, it turns up empty. And now Jacob shifts from defense to offense. Read Jacob's rebuke there, verses 36 to 42. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. And I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. (coughs) What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it. Whether stolen by day or stolen by night, there I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from before my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction. And the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Now Jacob, he's pretty hot, right? He is indignant. He runs through the history of his faithful service. He underscores the hardship he faced in Laban's household. He faced the heat and the cold. He faced the uncharitable conditions of bearing the financial burden when beasts tore into the flock. He faced the critical micromanagement and accounting of Laban. It was not a blessing to work for Laban. It was a burden. And still, Jacob was a blessing to Laban. Right? The ewes and the goats, they did not miscarry. And Jacob never ate of the rams of Laban's flock. Jacob was a faithful servant. And Laban was an onerous, enslaving boss. Jacob 
is sure to get his point across that he has served his time. It's like, no, no, we're done here. I've, I've served my time. He mentions the length of his service three times. Twice he mentions that he served Laban for 20 years, verses 38 to 41. And then he tabulates it for him one last time there at the end of verse 41. But really, what's the conclusion of it all? Did you see it there in verse 42? Read it again. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. You see, Jacob, he recognizes the protecting power of the covenant God. If it were not for God, Jacob would be destitute. If it were not for God, Jacob would be poor and penniless because of Laban. But God, for his glory, and Jacob's good, has intervened. You see, that when, when Jacob refers to the fear of Isaac, he's underscoring God's dreaded power. You see, God can confront his enemies even when they sleep. That is frightening. My God can come after you in your dreams. Laban, he can rebuke you while you rest. Yahweh, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, he sees the affliction of his people. And this is the language that Moses uses actually in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 about Israel being enslaved in Egypt. And there we read, Then the Lord Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Do you see what Moses is teaching the people of Israel through Jacob's life? Your God is Jacob's God. Your God knows your suffering, your affliction, your burdens. He knows, he cares, and he acts. Christian, this is your God too. He sees your burdens. He sees your affliction. He cares. And he acts. Moses is teaching the people of Israel this. Just like Jacob acted, just like God protect, acted to protect Jacob, just like God acted to free Jacob from Laban's house, just like God protected Jacob when he was pursued by Laban, so God has protected you. God protected you when Pharaoh pursued hard after you. God will protect you as you make your way home. God is on your side. And let us learn from this. That God will rebuke those who mistreat His people. Either in this life or in the life to come. God will right the wrongs of those who mistreat His people. And we need to leave that in His hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But this raises a question for us. A question I want to ask you. Is God on your side? Are, are you one of His people? Are you able to say like Jacob, if it had not been for the Lord, I would be empty-handed and eternally lost? You see, the reality is, is that we are all serving a master. Spiritually speaking, either God is your master or sin and Satan is your master. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, says that we follow the prince of the power of the air. A reference to Satan, his demonic power. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, tells us that the devil has the power of death. And that Jesus came to deliver us from lifelong slavery. So here's the question. Is Jesus on your side? Has He rescued you from Satan and slavery to sin? Or are you committed to living like Laban, demanding everything you can get out of this world and other people? Are you trusting in and absorbed with the idols of this world? Or do you hope in the protecting power of God? It is beyond doubt that God is on Jacob's side. Is He on your side? God is present with Jacob. He protects him every step of the way. Here's the question. Will Laban lay down his arms? Will he finally let Jacob go free? Will there be peace between these men? Yes. Why? Because God procures peace. That's what we see in our third point. God is not only present with us, He not only protects us, but He also procures our peace. Follow along now as I read Genesis 31, verses 43 to 55. Begin there in verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do? This day, for these my daughters, or for their children whom they have borne. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took, took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegera the Shudatha. But Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mitzvah. For he said, The Lord Yahweh watch between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is a witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Well, these verses, they chronicle for us how Laban finally relinquishes his claim upon Jacob and his household. And they also tell us how the Lord secures peace between the parties. Jacob has just made an indignant speech to Laban. And Uncle Laban finally says uncle there in verses 43 to 44. 
but not without telling Jacob what he really thinks, right? Notice his language. My daughters, my children, my flocks, it's all mine. He wants it lodged in Jacob's mind that it really belongs to him, all of it. Maybe he thinks that such pressure would lead Jacob to give it up. Laban's attitude is common in our day to day. Right? Perhaps you're old enough, that means you're my generation or older, uh, perhaps you're old enough to have seen the bumper stickers that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And then a few years later, a, a different set of bumper stickers came out that said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. You see, the people of this world think that they own the possessions of the world, but they never do. God owns it all, and He distributes it as He sees fit. God simply calls us to be faithful stewards. He has distributed the bounty and blessing to Jacob, not Laban. But Laban had a difficult time letting go and accepting God's providence. And in the end, Laban he kind of throws up his hands and says, but what can I do? Like, I, ca I, can't, I can't really do anything. I recognize that. He can't really do anything except to bless the one whom God has blessed. To join the side of him who has the Lord on his side. That's what Laban should have done. Now we need to understand that when Laban asks to cut a covenant with Jacob there in verse 44, that he's not doing so out of joyful acceptance of God's providence. The covenant is a non-aggression pact. The covenant is a peace treaty. But it's one of the least peaceful peace treaties I think the world has ever seen. And the idea of being, there being a witness between Jacob and Laban means that they're going to call somebody to judge between them. They're going to call someone to punish them should either of them violate the terms of the covenant. You see, covenants include parties. They involve punishments and are often made in a particular place. That's part of the purpose of the pile of stones there, to mark the place where the covenant was formed. The stones also establish a boundary marker, right? Both men, they name the place. Jacob uses the Hebrew. Laban uses Aramean. And the names actually mean the same thing. They mean witness heap, referring to that pile of stones there. Covenants involve parties. They're made at places. They threaten punishments. And they include promises. What are the promises of this covenant? Well, in verses 49 to 51, we learn that Jacob, he's not to harm Laban's daughters, or take any more wives alongside his daughters. There's part of me that appreciates what Laban says to Jacob. Uh, if you harm my daughter, I'm coming after you. I kind of think that every father who's kind of handing his daughter over might want to say that. At least I, I kind of do at some point. Uh, anyway, um, he, though, recognized that Laban's saying, if you harm my daughters, or take any more wives alongside his daughters, he already has three too many, if you ask the Lord. Anyway, in verse 51, Jacob is also committed to not crossing over this heap of stones to come near Laban. And the implicit idea is that Jacob would not cross the stone marker to harm Laban. And the promise goes the other way too. Laban is not to cross over that pile of stones to harm Jacob either. This is, as I said, a, a non-aggression pact. It's a peace treaty. But calling the place mitzvah and calling the Lord to keep watch and witness is like saying, I want God to keep an eye on you, you dirty, rotten, scoundrel, no good excuse for a son-in-law or father-in-law. Uh, my father-in-law is here for worship today. Uh, I think we're going to have an interesting conversation over lunch, don't you? Um, <laughs> seriously, though, uh, notice who is called upon in verse 53. The God of Abraham, 
and the God of Nahor. And actually, that phrase, the God of Nahor, I think is better translated, um, the gods, lowercase g and pluralized, the gods of Nahor. In other words, Laban is invoking his Aramean gods and Jacob's God, the God of Abraham. It's almost as if, right, Laban is calling his Aramean gods to his side, while Isaac is calling Yahweh to his side. I mean, observe who Isaac swears by there at the end of verse 53. He doesn't swear by the gods of Nahor. He only swears by the fear of his father Isaac. He swears by the one true and living God. Jacob's a a monotheist. He's not a polytheist. He has one God and only one God because there is only one God. He swears by the God who strikes dread in the hearts of those who threaten his people. And Jacob's commitment is a subtle reminder to Laban who this true God is. Jacob swears by the God who can speak. He swears by the God who cannot be stolen. By the God who cannot be sat upon. By the God who cannot be defiled. The God who can confront scoundrels in their dreams. The God who can come to the side of a servants. The God who can keep watch over his people. The God who can prevent harm from befalling his people. The God who can get his people home. The God who can secure peace. That is the God that Jacob swears by and offers a sacrifice to. This sacrifice and the meal, it seals the deal. The invitation for Jacob's kinsmen to eat bread shows that they are witnesses to this covenant. This is a public arrangement, a public peace treaty. And so with this meal, the threat of harm comes to rest. All that is left for Laban to do is to leave. And that's what he does there in verse 55. He kisses his grandchildren and his granddaughters. He blesses them and then he bids them farewell. Laban goes home. And now Jacob gets to go home to Canaan. Do you see what Moses is telling the people of Israel? The Lord your God is on your side. And he can get you safely home to Canaan. And as we conclude, friend, I I wonder, who are you trusting to get you safely home to heaven. Who are you trusting to get you safely home to heaven? Will you trust in your own cleverness like Jacob? Will you cling to the gods of this world like Rachel? Will you pursue people and possessions like Laban? Or will you turn your life over to the God who is present with his people? You know that because of sin... We deserve to face God's holy, infinite, and eternal wrath forever in hell. But that in love, God sent His Son into the world to be present with us, to rescue us out of our slavery to sin. Jesus lived a perfect life for His people. Jesus died a painful death for His people. And Jesus put an end to the punishment that we deserve by His resurrection from the dead. Will you turn your life over to Jesus, to the one who paid it all, who promises to eternally protect the souls of those who belong to Him? Will you turn your life over to Jesus, who procures peace with God for you? When Jesus offered Himself as a sacrifice for your sins, He inaugurated the new covenant. He made peace by the blood of His cross. Will you turn your life over to the one who has entered into the heavenly places and advocates for His people at His Father's side. 
Jesus is at the Father's side, declaring day by day that He is on His people's side. Friend, would you repent? Would you turn from your sins? Or would you place your faith in Jesus? If this is your heart's desire, come and speak with me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about this good news. Talk with the friend or the family member that you came here with today. Entrust yourself to Jesus. And dear Christian, as you make your way home to that heavenly promised land, remember that the Lord Jesus is near. Jesus is with you and will be with you to the end. Remember that Jesus will protect your soul until you rest in His house. One day, He will come and take you to Himself. Remember that Jesus has bought your peace by His blood. One day, He will bring you final peace. Remember, in the words of the song that we'll sing in just a moment, Be still, my soul. The Lord, the hour is hastening on, when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fears are gone, sorrow forgot, and love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. Beloved, the Lord is on your side, and He will bring you safely home. Let's give Him thanks for that now. Let's pray together.